0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the new books network.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to new books in LGBTQ plus studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee. I'm a PhD candidate and running a scholar in the Department of Gender Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I am delighted to have Dr. Marit Sullivan with us today. Dr. Sullivan is Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Loyola Marymount University. Professor Sullivan's research and teaching interests include feminist and queer theory, feminist methods, critical health studies, and identity-based health politics. Today we'll be in conversation about Dr. Sullivan's new book, Lesbian Death, Desire and Danger Between Feminist and Queer, published by Minnesota University Press this year. Um, welcome to the New Books Network, Married.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited to get a chance to talk about this book.
1: Me too. Um, I am excited to hear you speak about this uh, wonderful book. Um, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual and affective journeys uh, and how those journeys have culminated in this book?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in many ways, this book started about fifteen years ago, um, when I was actually working in public health research, and I was managing a project called the Women's Wellbeing Projects, uh, but was actually a study of lesbian breast cancer. So it was in the field of social and behavioral public health. So what we were looking at was how did folks who had had breast cancer, how did they fare five years, ten years, and beyond after? Um, the initial diagnosis and treatment. And we were specifically comparing lesbian women to their heterosexual counterparts. And so I was doing that work in my day life, while at the same time, I was a part of wider feminist and queer organizing uh, that was often organizing that was happening in response to both the mainstreaming of gay and lesbian life through gay marriage, wider conversations around healthcare for all versus, you know, gay marriage being a gateway to healthcare for some queers and especially around these ongoing battles about quote-unquote women's only spaces and specifically the Michigan Women's Music Festival. And so, um It was a lot of that work that actually brought me to doing a PhD in women's and gender studies, where I was especially interested in tracing the sort of longer histories of breast cancer activism and specifically lesbian breast cancer activism. And as I got started on my dissertation, I was in the archives, sort of looking for, looking for. What was happening in 1970s, women's health organizing around breast cancer. And it was there that I stumbled upon the Clit papers. Clit stands for Collective Lesbian International Terrorists. And these these manifestos, which I talk about in the book, are just so wonderfully and delightfully Solonus-esque. Valerie Solanus-esque in their like completely vitriolic commitment to the full scale destruction of heteropatriarchy. And, And in many ways are very emblematic of the kinds of what I call politics of destruction that get attached to lesbian feminism and specifically to lesbian separatism. And so these two moments or these two So this, that moment of finding the clip papers is actually when the project switched to be about this wider question of like, what is lesbian? What does lesbian do politically? And that's all also against this backdrop of, again, what I think is a kind of ongoing accusation that younger people no longer want to be lesbians, lesbian identity is going out of style. There's no more lesbians. Whereas on the one hand, here I was being funded 15 years ago by organizations like the American cancer society to study lesbians and simultaneously I'm witnessing what I see as a kind of move away from lesbian as this kind of destructive political force, this kind of disidentification in a certain way. Um, well, actually I want to take that back and not say disidentification, because I think part of what I see happening is that this claim that queer is forgetting lesbian is really a kind of representational claim. Whereas if we trace lesbian as a certain kind of political commitment, I think we find it traced through what movements that we might call queer today. But simultaneously, we see this kind of weaponization of lesbian and lesbian identity, specifically against trans women, um, but against wider sort of movements for thinking gender justice thinking economic justice etc and so part of what um i see so the project in many ways then responds to all of these wider questions like what what are our attachments to 1970s lesbian feminism but also what's going on in this sort of hand-wringing anxiety that no one wants to be a lesbian. And I think we see that anxiety in a number of places. I anchor it also in Bonnie Morris's book, um, 2016 book, The Disappearing L. And in that book, Morris really anchors this loss of lesbian and the loss of lesbian spaces. And so part of what I'm interested in or what brought me to this is this dizzying experience that I have of, on the one hand, for almost 10 years now, I've been working on this project on lesbian identity. And if I sit next to someone on a plane and say, I'm writing a book about how no one wants to be a lesbian, they'll often be like, oh, but I know so many lesbians, like there's lesbians everywhere. Um, And that against this backdrop of this sort of internal lesbian conversation of like, well, no one wants to be a lesbian anymore. And so I I see that I want to, or what Bob, what this book does is that I want to talk about that in two day, two ways, one of which is that, that I think empirically there still are lots of people who call themselves lesbians. Whether or not that group overlaps with the group of people who uh, would anchor their social and political life in these histories that lesbian feminism promised in these political commitments is one question. But simultaneously, what I'm trying to argue is that Those folks who might worry that lesbian identity is going out of fashion, that no one wants to be a lesbian, which is a claim that I reject. But even if we were to take seriously the worry, then I want those same folks to take seriously the weaponization of lesbian, um, especially against trans women, even the weaponization of lesbian against youth. (laughs) Um, Because I actually do find that I think it's younger people today are very invested in lesbian politics and lesbian cultures. In expansive and capacious ways, in ways that are actually about fighting against white supremacy, about fighting against transphobia, about economic justice, etc.
1: Absolutely, and um, also my own identification with the term um, has been incredibly empowering, and I and I felt extremely affirmed um, by your book as well. Um, at the very outset you begin by mentioning that your project approaches the lesbian with ambivalence um, and that's su- such ambivalence is central to ongoing debates around lesbian death and survival um, could you tell our audience a little bit about how this ambivalence in- informs and shapes your book um, and why is it necessary to hold on to this ambivalence today when interrogating lesbian politics and activism
0: yeah this is a great question so in the book, I I, I really do route, root myself in this ambivalence, and I'm taking my use of ambivalence from psychoanalysis. Though <laughs> you know, that might not come out as clearly in the book, but you know, I I think culturally we tend to think of, or colloquially, let's say, we tend to think of ambivalence as this kind of like flippant dismissal, like oh, I don't care, I could take it or leave it. But if we think through psychoanalysis, ambivalence is really this state, this like sort of tension of love and hate right and so in in the sort of developmental system of melanie klein actually being able to come to the place where you can hold these two feelings in tension about an object is a point of developmental maturity and so i think that um And so in other words, you know, being able to engage ambivalence is to recognize that things that bring us comfort can also be a source of frustration, that things that bring us joy can also be harmful. And so... For me, anchoring myself in ambivalence is necessary to de idealize lesbian. And I think part of what I see happening in these wider hand wringing conversations about lesbian identity is this real idealization of lesbian. um, An idealization, even of lesbian spaces, but also of of lesbian politics, of lesbian identity. and I'm, I'm very interested in de-idealizing lesbian, not because I want to sort of cut lesbian down, but because I think that that there's a necessary part of the project of lesbian that we have to engage, that lesbian can be weaponized, that lesbian can be a source of frustration, of pain. Um but I think that this ambivalence is also a guiding affect for the wider queer and trans engagements with lesbian that I see in, in my own sort of peer groups, in my own political work, et cetera. And so I'm thinking um, my colleague Emily Owens at Brown University is currently in the beginning of a project on lesbian humor. And we talk a lot about these, these sort of like shared humorous references. I, one that comes to mind is, you know, talking about lesbians and Subarus or thinking for myself, i i I've owned a Subaru for nearly 20 years now. And it's often when I'm trying to position myself in lesbian spaces, I'll talk about being a Subaru owner. And this is this real sort of tongue in cheek, wink, wink, way to talk about being informed by lesbian culture. Um, and ways that I think are both a little bit cringy. And I say that, I hope that I'm saying that in a more sort of TikTok generation way, like cringe as something that we like love, that we desire, that we're, that we're attached to, even as it sort of pushes on something that we're uncomfortable with as well. Um, and so I think that there's a way in which part of what I'm doing, especially again, in thinking about the weaponization of lesbian is, is saying that there's many of us who hate lesbian and I think you know hate is a strong word here but I I use it specifically in this idea of ambivalence as a tension of love and hate but because lesbian is being weaponized against queerness against gender most especially against trans women but I actually think that it's in the spaces where you find avowed commitments to queerness to gender expansiveness to trans women that you find this ambivalent relationship to lesbian and that ambivalent relationship, I wanna say is a a good thing. It's a developmentally appropriate thing. And it's actually the space like ambivalence will allow lesbian to persist because because we're able to tolerate that lesbian can't be everything we want it to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And there are um, so many trans women who are lesbians to to say Absolutely. that um, i mean <laughs> yeah to say that it's wonderful I, I about politics yeah, yeah
0: that trans women in my experience you know lesbian lesbian feminist culture survives because tra- because of trans women trans women are lesbian feminist culture and have been from the beginning and i think um you know that that's both important to name and recognize but also what i find so dangerous about this weaponization of lesbian.
1: Absolutely. And while going through your book, I was also thinking how lesbian politics can redeem itself, um, really. And, and maybe we'll find uh, answers from you during during this um, interview. Um, you separate lesbians as a kind of person from lesbian, which you write in italics, as a political and social signifier, you also use lesbian as a floating signifier to to trace its mobility. Uh, could you tell our audience what the lesbian as a floating signifier does uh, and what kinds of lesbian mobilities it um, helped you interrogate?
0: Yeah, this is... Um... This is such a great question. I have to admit that in the first draft of this book, I tried not to use the lesbian in any specific way. It made for a rather clunky reading. Um, but, the, but this distinction is really central to what I try to draw out in the book. And I think it's related to a lot of what I've said um, in the previous question, that there's many people who might not say, like, I am a lesbian, but still feel hailed By lesbian cultural and political signifiers. And if we trace lesbian to these cultural and political signifiers, but also commitments, then we also can find lesbian in all sorts of political and social movements that might not foreground the language of lesbian. Um, And so here, you know, I'm reminded often of Bell Hooks, who famously said, I I'm not, I'm going to, this is paraphrasing. I I should have the quote in front of me, but you know, I'm not a feminist. I advocate for feminism. And I like to think in that way, like I'm not a lesbian. I advocate lesbianism. (laughs) And what does it mean to advocate lesbianism? (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, I'm fond of, of coming up with other terms like lesbianic to describe those cultural touch points and those political touch points that I think many of us carry into work and into the ways that that you and I were just talking about being lesbian and queer, the relationship between lesbian and queer. And I think that so much of the disidentification or the move away from I am a lesbian is not actually because people don't want to be lesbians so much as it is that the most vocal voices (laughs) That's a redundancy, but the loudest voices, or perhaps even not the loudest, because I do think that they're actually a very small voice. But the ones who make the largest claims on the singularity of lesbian are doing so in ways that are exclusionary, right? And we can look to women's women's only spaces to see this. That to be a lesbian, you have to be X, and so the disidentification that comes about in the last. Twenty to thirty years, I see less as a, a whole scale rejection of the histories of lesbian feminisms, and more as a like, okay, fine, <laughs> then I won't be a lesbian, but I'm still going to do I'm because that's because you're saying lesbian has to be this, but I'm committed to this, this, and this that is has little to do with what you're demarcating as the gates around lesbian over here, um, and so that's what I, I'm you know trying to draw forward. And in so doing, I actually, perhaps counterintuitively, want to dissuade people from the idea that lesbian is going out of favor. And I want to do that on two fronts, because one, like I've said, I think there remains plenty of people who call themselves lesbians. Uh, So, you know, and you can look even to the field of public health, for example, to see just an explosion in counting lesbians, if, if you will. But I also think that the commitments of lesbian feminist politics are very much alive. One of the questions that that I don't know that I resolve in the book or or will resolve today, but is like, what's the overlap in the Venn diagram of these two? And I think that's where, um, you know, I talk in the introduction to the book about, I sort of nod to the end of Michigan Women's Music Festival, but then I talk about the Dinah Shore Festival out here in Palm Springs in Southern California, which happens every year, there's music, it's like a lesbian, I think I call it a lesbian Uh, Bacchanal, gets bigger every year, I think there's 100,000 participants, it might be less than that, I might be getting a bit hyperbolic, but it's you know, it's a huge lesbian cultural gathering, but no one points to Dinah Shore as a way to say like, oh no, lesbian music festivals, lesbian life persists even after Michigan, and that's largely because Dinosaur doesn't have a kind of lesbian feminist politics behind it. And so that's the other thing that this book is trying to do is to actually separate the lesbian or like capital L lesbian as an identity framework that can travel anywhere. You can be a CEO and be a lesbian and lesbian feminist politics that might not require we all say I am a lesbian, but are actually rooted in a social and political commitment to ending white supremacist heteropatriarchy.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, You begin by mentioning in the book's introduction that you reject its its premise of lesbian death as a metaphor. Um, You write that the lesbian lives and the lesbian who lives is multiple Um, and that there is, as you've mentioned already, there's a lot of anxiety surrounding the demise of the lesbian with the rise of the queer um, and the rise of the Trans, could you tell us what the significance of rejecting the idea of metaphorical lesbian death holds for um, queer politics and activism today? Yes,
0: yes. I should say that you did send me this question ahead of time. And I believe I read it wrong because hearing you say it right now, I was originally going to ask you to clarify if you're asking what the benefit is for queer in rejecting lesbian, but you're really asking what's the benefit in rejecting this metaphorical lesbian death. Is that correct? Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, I think my answer will still be the same. I'll just phrase it slightly differently. So, you know, part of what happens in these conversations, as you've already pointed out, the lesbian becomes singular, but so does queer. And so, part of what I push back on in the book is is even the idea that queer that queer goes with lesbian death. And so, the lineages of queer theory and queer politics that I'm most interested in would be grouped under frameworks like queer color critique, queer abolition, queer anti capitalism. And I think if we look at these movements or these academic lineages or intellectual lineages, they're deeply informed by lesbian political histories and in fact are central to lesbian political work today um and so i think the benefit for queer and rejecting this metaphorical lesbian death is that the way that that queer gets framed in these claims of lesbian death also renders queer very static very uh ahistorical which is such a Bigger conversation in queer theory that I'm not trying to wade into, but but does a disservice actually to put it in somewhat mild terms to the ways in which queer, at least the queer movements that that I'm a part of that are most exciting and generative to my work are both center and central to lesbian feminist politics, and so I can think like during the pandemic, you you can remember. I I hate to sound like I'm remembering any part of 2020 fondly, because I think the last three years have been and continue to be just absolutely horrific. And there were these moments, especially I think in the first 12 months of the pandemic, which is just like a ridiculous thing to say, but um, that we were all trying to figure out, okay, how do we keep, how do we keep our worlds going while we're locked in? And there was this way in which we got to go to more talks and have you know book parties that were over zoom and people could join from a number of time zones and um julie enzer and sinister wisdom put together so many fabulous events they continue to put together so many fabulous events but i will admit that my that i wasn't able to join remotely prior to the pandemic when i sort of learned this new way of of uh, engaging community and You could log into these Sinister Wisdom events on Zoom and there would be 400 people crammed into a Zoom room, an open Zoom room, not like a webinar, but like an open Zoom room where you have to scroll through six pages of thumbnails to see everyone who is there. And just visually, this was such a, a spread of people generationally in terms of race and gender presentation and geographically where everyone was so this incredibly diverse and rich community and also you know as we're struggling to to navigate zoom people are constantly have their mics unmuted and you're hearing this like sort of cacophony of everyday life which also to me feels very lesbianic. it's like very grassroots just kind of scraping by uh, there was one event that I was at where there was a sing-along with 400 people on Zoom, which, you know, can nearly, like, nearly breaks Zoom if you've tried to sing together with people over Zoom. But but these spaces, which were rooted in in lesbian, in Julie's work with her wisdom, but were also just profoundly queer in the most, in the ways that we think of queer uh, capaciously. Right, and so I think that the um, or let me think of another place where I think that it's beneficial for queer to disavow or to push back against this metaphorical death of lesbian. How do I want to actually make this connection? (laughs) Because is you know um, this. I think that the, as I've sort of talked about, the claim of lesbian death can only be responded to empirically, or at least it seems. So no one wants to be a lesbian. You say, oh no, I did a survey of 1,000 college students, 1,000 women's studies college students, and 800 of them are lesbians, or something like that. But that, you know, and then, and then, can we make an argument against that? Like, I don't know, we have the numbers now, but it but it doesn't bring us to wider questions. So like I'm thinking here of the movement to defund the police. Is that a lesbian feminist project? Well, if lesbian is a movement against heteropatriarchy, and if police are sort of the ultimate daddy, to use the language of the clip papers, who say, kill daddy, and they rule through terror, and their primary job is to protect the property elite, and we're indoctrinated to think of police as these benevolent caregivers, then I'm not sure that a celebration of lesbians in the police force is what lesbian feminist politics sought. But I think that you're likely to find a good faction of people calling themselves lesbian in police forces. So, you know, we could, we could do a survey of all the police forces in the United States and find out how many how many officers identify as lesbian and this might give us some numbers to say like oh yeah lesbian identity persists but is that the is that the lesbian that we're is that the the framework of lesbian that we're seeking to preserve or is thinking of defunding the police as a lesbian movement if if lesbian is about entering heteropatriarchy then defunding the police which you know, is actually less about defunding and more about funding and resourcing communities, economic justice for all, mental health care for all, a redistribution of resources for collective benefit, then to defund the police is a lesbian movement, even as doing so might make some police officers who identify as lesbians feel under attack, right? And so it's that kind of, it's that tension within lesbian that I want to or try to engage in this book.
1: Yeah, that's that's so incredibly powerfully put, absolutely. Um, in in the first chapter of your book, you write about anti-capitalist political frameworks um, that informed lesbian activism and politics before the 1990s. Um, the loss of which you argue is, is not lamented as much as the loss of Lesbian spaces is. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what the loss of critiques rooted in anti-capitalism and anti-patriarchy means for what we make of lesbian politics and community building, past and present? I I feel you've touched on this a little bit um, in in your answer to the previous question, Um, but yeah, I I remain I remain curious. Yeah,
0: yeah, I think I have something to add. I mean, um, this is I'm so. You know, I have to say the questions that you have are so wonderful and and actually help me to feel like, oh, the book is doing what I was hoping it would do. So this question is especially, I'm especially grateful for. So I think that, you know, these critiques of capitalism, of patriarchy are very much still alive. And I think that if we follow these critiques, we can lead, they lead us to the enduring lesbian of lesbian, sorry. <laughs> the enduring legacy of lesbian politics, whether or not those movements call themselves lesbian. Right. And so actually, um, Kristen Hogan's book, The Feminist Bookstore Movement, was really informative for me in thinking about this. I mean, I think about this switch point um, as being in the 1990s around lesbian biopolitics and the rise of sort of lesbian breast cancer activism. Um, but Hogan notes this material shift in the 1990s about how book selling happens. And um, I'm going to, um, I should have reread this chapter of Hogan's book to prepare to answer this, but but she has this wonderful analysis of how, you know, in the nineties, all sorts of things are happening, um, including the rise of the internet, but other economic forces that are leading to big box bookstores, Barnes and Nobles, Borders, Amazon. And then there's a real movement to sort of resolidify, I don't know if that's the verb I want to use, but you know, recommit to independent bookstores. And Hogan notes that white women booksellers at the time became leaders in this movement to support independent bookstores. But in so doing they entered this and, and, and they were successful. And so in so doing they they were part of a sort of economic viability of independent bookstores, at least for a while. But also in so doing, they left behind much of their anti-capitalist, i sorry, anti-racist, but also anti-capitalist and accountability frameworks and politics that had so informed feminist bookstore movements in the 70s and 80s. And so part of what happens is, you know, and, and Bonnie Morris's book is a really great, gives a lot of really great examples of how this conversation becomes a, about the loss of space well no one appreciates this history no one wants to engage it people just want the easy thing they just want to go to barnes and nobles and so they don't shop at feminist bookstores anymore without a wider sort of examination of what what are the economic policies that are happening around this or what um what does it mean to trade economic survival against political roots and that maybe holding on to your political roots might mean not surviving economically, but is that like, what's, what happens in that trade-off? Or, and again, to use an example from Morris's book, she, um, early in the book talks about going to the, uh, like an, I think an opening ceremony or, or party for the LGBT center at Georgetown University, and that there's these images Post, I imagine them as poster-sized images of students um, all around the room saying, like, I am, I am queer, I am bisexual, etc." And that Morris notes that there was not one that said, I am a lesbian. And I could imagine just such a poster. Like, it could easily imagine a poster that would say, I am a lesbian. But then underneath have, like, a I want to be careful in ever talking about students even a student that is totally imaginary in my mind but underneath you know like a biography of the student saying lesbian student is a double major in marketing and finance whose career goal is to be a fortune 500 ceo but like again is this lesbian is do we stop then to say like oh we have the poster that says i am lesbian so lesbian lesbian life persists if that framework of lesbian isn't attached to a feminist politics Or, I mean, similar, we see a similar thing with the closing of lesbian bars, right? And so the Lex becomes this sort of national, there's a national outcry of the closing of the Lex, uh, which is a famous lesbian bar in San Francisco that I talked about that actually only opened in 1997, even though the ways in which the Lex is talked about when it closes in 2015 is as though it had been there for 100 years, or at least 50 years. Um, But the Lex you know, it was a, a famous lesbian dive bar in the Mission and went out of business in 2015, largely because much of the neighborhood clientele had been forced out of the neighborhood and the rents were rising at such an astronomical rate that the owners could not keep the bar going. And so this becomes a part of a wider narrative that like lesbian lesbian identity is gone because no one's going to the Lex and now the Lex is going out of business. but. Would those same people show up at the at protests in San Francisco to rally about the homelessness crisis in San Francisco, or to protest rising rents, or the city policies of the decade plus preceding the closing of the Lex that made it, you know, the sort of like tech playground uh, that led to these rising rents, both for residents and for commercial properties, and changes the entire makeup of the city? And so those are, the, those are the things that I want us to grapple with, or that I try to grapple with in the book, um, and to think, to think lesbian in these, these anti-capitalist, anti-patriarchy, anti-racist roots, and not solely as an identity marker that we can count.
1: Absolutely. And and I, as I was listening to you speak about this in, in such an advanced way, I was also thinking how um, the closing of bars, uh, lesbian bars, is seen as um, the demise of lesbian culture uh, or the, the demise of subcultural sort of knowledge, which we continue to access in many ways, even in the absence of bars. I'm from India and I, there are not, um, many or any lesbian bars that I know of and, and lesbians still meet and queer women still meet informally. And there's still so much uh, knowledge and, and intimacy to access. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. Yes.
0: And I would actually also recommend Jack Gieseking's book, A Queer New York, where he does just a wonderful job describing exactly what you have just said, the ways that lesbian community formations build and persist and shift in response to their context right and and the closing of a bar is not the end of a community
1: yeah absolutely um, in in the second chapter of your book, and it's also one of my favorite chapters, um, titled Marked for Life, Breast Cancer and Lesbian Biopolitics, you explore the ways in which the lesbian comes to be associated with claims on the body. Um, and it in turn stabilizes the idea of a particular kind of lesbian body um, contained within norms of cis womanhood, um, which then aligns itself um, with Uh, as you point out, with a project of state-sponsored normativity. um, Could you tell us a little bit about what the lesbian as a biopolitical category does in terms of moving lesbian politics away from projects of um, anti-normativity as well as uh, from lesbian collectives rooted in such anti-normative politics?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so at a baseline, I mark this as a moment where the state literally the National Institutes of Health, start counting lesbians. And this, to me, shifts the political claim that lesbian can make because lesbian is now a sort of protected, I'm not sure that protected is the right word, but a sort of constituted category for the state. And so to me, what this does is it it actually shifts, it, it's part of a wider shift in gay and lesbian politics in the 90s. Um, But this is sort of lesbian. In the the book, I trace it, like this is sort of lesbians inroads through and with HIV AIDS activism where lesbians are now, I mean, if they're being counted by the National Institutes of Health, it's a population that the state has a particular interest, might be too pointed of a word, but a, a particular investment in counting knowing understanding and it does it opens doors for you know for the work that i was doing in lesbian breast cancer research that was like i said funded by these major breast cancer organizations but but similar to what we've been talking about in terms of anti capitalism in terms of kristen hogan's work with um, book bookwomen in the 90s like what do we lose in in that turn to State-based recognition, and I think so much of what we lose is a political claim that associates lesbian with a politics of destruction, and this happens in many ways across the '90s. But um, you know, in the early '90s, there's this wave of of lesbian chic, which is a various sort of like whitewashed suburban kind of lesbian framing. Um, And lesbians are on the covers of a number of national magazines across 92 and 93. But around the same time, too, there's this major media outcry about a lesbian breast cancer epidemic and that lesbians are dying from breast cancer or suffering from breast cancer at at five times the rate of their heterosexual peers. And so this kind of panic leads to a different way of doing politics, where lesbian is now a a group, again, to be protected by the state, to be invested in by the state. And lesbian no longer carries that, that threat that um, Victoria Hesford identifies when lesbian, the sort of feminist as lesbian figure emerges in the early 1970s.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, also, connecting it to the idea of the classed lesbian. And it also made me think what kind of lesbian is deemed worthy of protection by the state. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And in the chapter,
0: I talk a little bit, too, about how this then becomes like, you know, you see this kind of split of lesbians and African-American women, for example, in n- numerous places. But at this particular moment, much of the the outcry in breast cancer research becomes that lesbians and African-American women, and then 10 years later, it's lesbians and African-American women and Latino women are, have higher rates of breast cancer. But this sort of splicing is, does this work to actually also render lesbian as a white gender normative figure who's like one degree away from the standard White cis heterosexual femininity norm, um, and so you know there's there's that framework, but there's also um, you know I think too this question of normativity and anti normativity is so important here because I, I think some of what happens in the um, in the in that particular strand of queer theory that's especially interested in anti normativity and which is the strand of queer theory that I really take up in the book. But I take it up in the book precisely because that's the strand of queer theory that is most readily sort of accused of leaving the lesbian behind. And, you know, like all binaries, anti-normativity tends to set normativity as its guideposts and in this way renders normativity kind of static. Um, And I don't think that lesbian feminist politics were so concerned with norms in that way, but rather really truly were like concerned with destruction, with destroying, ending white supremacist heteropatriarchy. And that seems both like a really nebulous and lofty claim, but also is the guidepost, I think, for much lesbian feminist politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You write that lesbian framing that clings to radical feminism as a political ideology, uh, and and that the politics of lesbian separatism is rooted in a politics of destruction, as you've you've mentioned um, here as well. Um, And and I quote, figure more, this politics of uh, destruction figure more um, violently and more literally than queer theories, Um, anti-social negativity, um, unquote, would you like to talk about the whiteness of lesbian separatism and the challenges to it uh, posed by Kombahi River Collective? Uh, And I taught the statement um, this semester. Um, And I'm I'm curious to also hear what um, the challenges to it are. was also posed by um, the anthology, This Bridge Called My Back, uh, especially the latter's call to coalition building by paying attention to relationships of power um, as the basis for uh, common political commitments as opposed to sameness of identity under oppression.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is such an important question Um, Because my point really is that vitriol, well as I call it, but really this sort of like heated commitment to a politics of destruction and the rhetorical strategies that the writings of these groups use is a motor of lesbian politics, lesbian feminist politics, more so than the simple fact of separatism. And so part of what I'm diagnosing in that chapter is how foundational lesbian feminist work like the Combahee River Collective like This Bridge Called My Back, is not read or touted as a lesbian feminist text. And so this framing, in this here, um, this is really Claire Heming's argument in Why Stories Matter, but that The story tends to be that, you know, lesbian separatism was bad because not all men are privileged. But luckily, black and third world feminism came around to remind these white feminists of how short sighted they were, or something to that effect, you know, and so in this way, black and third world feminism gets sort of positioned in the stories that feminist theory and feminist politics tells about itself as sort of rescuing white women from separatism, um, or helping us to understand the limits of separatism. And certainly Kambahi and and subsequent interviews both in This Bridge Called My Back and in a more recent text edited by Kiyonga Yamada-Taylor called How We Get Free, uh, interviews with um, the Smith sisters and who were part of the Kambahi River Collective talk a lot about the limits of separatism but I think to me what gets lost in that read is that Kambahis and, uh, and others are actually saying that separatism is like too soft, <laughs> that it's too easy. And we know it's easy because separatism requires a lot of privilege. Like I like to say, it takes a lot of capital that opt out of capitalism. Right. But getting into the dirty and messy work of coalition, like that's hard work. It's messy work. In the words of Pat Parker, uh, in a speech reprinted in, in this bridge called my back, it's not neat or pretty or quick. But part of what I, I try to highlight is, well, is precisely the ways that this claim of like, no one wants to be a lesbian, lesbian, everyone's forgetting lesbian politics, which again, I'm seeing, I mean, I think that that claim persists. It's, it's, both kind of, in some ways, a foundational claim of lesbian feminist politics, but also you certainly see it in the 90s and the aughts in the last 10 years. Um, And and what work that claim does shifts. It's not always the same claim. It doesn't do the same work, but there's an anxiety that persists. But I see it, especially after Morris's 2016 book, uh, which is also you know, two years into the global movement for Black Lives. Uh, I should know exactly what year How We Get Free came out, but I want to say like 2017. I'm looking it up right now. Yes, 2017. So here we are in this complete resurgence of talking about the Kambahi River Collective. And that's happening at the same time as this wider, louder claims that no one's paying attention to lesbian feminist histories. But Kumbahi is lesbian feminist history. And with that, what I want to show is that so much of that, the of the love part of the ambivalence about lesbian, I think, is this love of the 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 deeply vitriolic, destructive politics, the ways I mean, just so much of the writing in the seventies and early eighties, it it hits you in this visceral way where you're just like yes you know and you can be I think for those of us like you and I who are feminist scholars we can probably name the moment when we first encountered those texts and part of the joy of teaching is watching students encounter these texts but part of what I'm trying to point to here is that like it's not the separatism that gave us that it's the movement, it's the rhetoric, it's the ways of doing it. And we find so much of that in these very texts that are said to be the like sort of corrective. And so the Combahee River Collective, for example, says, we realize the liberation of all oppressed people necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. And I mean, this this statement may seem you know, There's ways you can read the statement. It's just like really straightforward. But when you like add that affect to it, like, this is a big claim. This is a huge commitment. And their accusation is that separatism is too short sighted. It's too targeted. I mean, they say in the statement that lesbian separatism lacks a coherent political analysis. Or One of my favorite pieces is Cheryl Clark's Lesbianism and Active Resistance, which is also printed in this bridge called My Back, where she states, Women are, quote, women are kept, maintained, and contained through terror, violence, and a spray of semen. And then a few lines later, she says, Against this historic backdrop, the woman who chooses to be a lesbian lives dangerously, end quote. And I like that kept, maintained, and contained. Through terror violence and a spray of semen like oh that's the kind of writing that just makes me like yes and that's what i think we're all attached to that's the love side of the ambivalence and it's and it's it's here it's in these texts that are i fear sometimes softened when they're positioned as the corrective to lesbian separatism rather than position is people who are like oh lesbian separatism (laughs) like that's cute let's talk about real politics let's talk about the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism you know
1: yeah absolutely um you are certain the concluding chapter of your book that we are not post-lesbian um, and I think that's been the central theme of, of this interview as well um, you write in a quote, by releasing the lesbian from a singular framework of identity one that is rooted in exclusion we can open the lesbian to a capacious polit- political project of world building, unquote, would you like to tell us what this project would entail and um, how can its commitments enable lesbian politics um, to to interrogate itself as it evolves yes yeah so um i mean i think this
0: project is out there i think that's been as you point out a lot of our conversation um but i want those who worry over lesbians demise to see lesbians legacy which Even to say lesbian's legacy implies that lesbian is in the past, but like lesbian's legacy and ongoing, ongoing viability everywhere. But even more so, I want those who worry about lesbian's demise to refuse in the staunchest and strongest possible terms, the weaponization of lesbian. And so part of this refusing to, part of this is refusing to believe the claim that no one wants to be a lesbian. Or that lesbians are going extinct. And so here I might return to Morris's specter of the lack of lesbian representation at the Georgetown LGBT Center, um, because I like to think that this was purposeful, like I like to think that in fact there were no lesbians there, that the lesbians on campus were refusing to be indoctrinated into the normative pole of campus LGBT politics that are often about representation but not about institutional, social, or political change. And I like to think that these lesbians were elsewhere on campus helping to organize labor or reclaiming bathrooms from the gender binary without the oversight of the institution or reading the Combahee River Collective in the basement of the library while discussing Marxism's failure to think race and gender. I mean, I hope that these lesbians were organizing a sit in to demand better food choices on campus or better pay for those who provide the food from farmers to truckers to campus food workers. And so, in that way, you know the lesbian, the lesbian world-building projects that I see are not actually about making more lesbians in the world per se, as much as they are about this continued commitment to a world otherwise. A continued commitment to, in the words of Kambahi, um, actually I lost my place. <laughs> of what I was going to read from Kambahi, but that this is about collective organizing and the redistribution of resources, that, quote, material resources must be equally distributed amongst those who create these resources, end quote. That lesbian world building is about clean water and fresh air and mental health resources and defunding the police. And even more so about funding communities and trusting communities and thinking knowledge locally. Uh, I live in the. I'm not sure how much this is made national or internationally news, but I live in in Council District 14 in Los Angeles, where we are currently seeking to recall a city councilor who has been who was part of a leak of targeted racist commentary, um, and then has been refusing to leave leave his seat and has been a part of ongoing um, actual physical violence against Black Lives Matter activists here in L.A. And part of this work, as I'm gathering with neighbors in front of Trader Joe's to sign the recall efforts, is a reminder, too, that that so much of politics happens at the local level. And so when I think about lesbian campus politics, I don't think about posing for a picture, but I think about getting into that gritty work of understanding you know where the points of harm are where the barriers to flourishing are and how we can break those points how we can engage that politics of destruction um and i see it happening in lots of places and there's just three of many many organizations that i wanted to mention that are doing this kind of work including Audrey Lord Lorde Project in New York, SONG, which stands for Southerners on New Ground in the Southeast of the United States, and Critical Resistance, which is a queer abolitionist organization that's here in the US and internationally. And I think then in that way, lesbian world building is not just about lesbians, but is about envisioning and fighting for worlds beyond hetero-patriarchy which necessarily means fighting against white supremacy and capitalism, which are two of the strongest tools of heteropatriarchy. And so that's when we think lesbian capaciously, we follow lesbian to those projects, not just to the places where people say, I am a lesbian.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This was wonderfully uh, complex and, and, and nuanced and profoundly political. And I could go on and on. Um, I, I realize that we are nearing the end of um, this episode. Um, um, but before we let you go, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on?
0: Sure. Yes. Um, so I'm currently at the very beginning of my next book, which I'm right now calling Herpes, a cultural study. Um, but it will, so it's, It's methodologically similar. I'm tracing herpes from the 1970s to today and thinking about its political travels and how the history or the biography of herpes can lead us to these different points to understand how HIV AIDS has changed for better or worse, or we might even say sometimes dangerously, sometimes in ways that that leads to flourishing, um, have changed how we think about sex, how we think about surveillance, how we think about health, safety, et cetera. So that's what I'm working on right now.
1: That sounds like a great project. And also lesbianic can be it uh, enough itself.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> um, thank you so much, Marriott, for for this um, incredibly generative conversation and, and for this book, um, which I hope to teach someday. I really want to teach it someday. Um, thank you so much for, for this. Thank you. And thanks for
0: these incredible questions, which even helped me to better articulate some ways that I'm thinking in the book. So thank you.